First of all, I don't understand. I don't honestly understand why I've been the victim and been made the victim of so many untruths. Perhaps you don't understand. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. It's fucking hot today. I mean, stupid, stupid fucking hot. God damn it. <clears throat> You'd think it was goddamn summer, but no, it's fucking spring, supposedly. Bullshit. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, it's just fucking hot. It's ridiculous. This is uh this is Elton Reed's Book a Week, a podcast hell bent on rifling through every clearance bookshelf on earth, baby, for way too fucking long and then buying all the shit anyway. My name is Elton and I read a book a week. If you like the podcast and want it to go further and grow to ginormous umpteen zillion proportions whatever. Contribute on Patreon at patreon.com slash Elton Reads a Book a Week. Your contribution would allow the podcast to upgrade not only the gear, but the space it's recorded in instead of this really fucking hot room. Um, it would allow it to obtain more books, uh, bring in guests, maybe even start a, a literary version of Fight Club. Imagine what that would be like. Contributions will, would provide so, so much more. And for those contributions, you get a ton of cool stuff. Special episodes, extras, get in on giveaways, live discussions, and a ton of other things. Plus, you get to participate in the podcast directly. So, if you want to do that, head on over to Patreon and uh, start contributing. Alright, enough of that. Now, let's get into what has to be the biggest reason to ever, ever, never want to be a famous acting singer. It's the biggest fucking reason why you don't want to do it I've ever read in my fucking life. It's Judy Garland by Ann Edwards. Oh, excuse me. I found myself in a Goodwill, looking for vintage shirts, broken-in blue jeans, and, of course, books. This beat-up Judy Garland paperback lumped in with the standard self-published chicken soup for your taxes fair. It struck me, because I've always kind of liked Judy Garland, and I like a good biography, so I... I'll grab one when I can. This one, uh, as it would turn out, was special. Sometimes, you know, a book finds you at the right time in your life, like a perfect storm. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like kismet. It just lines up, man. However, this particular kismet is really important now, at this time, for everybody. It's all over the news. I mean, there's the Bill Cosby thing. It's disgusting. Anyway... The life of Judy Garland has a lot to teach, man, and it should be talked about in actual classrooms. Bar rooms, bedrooms, living rooms, to real students, to boys and girls, men and women, everybody. Especially now, with everything going on in the news, and with women empowerment, and the Me Too movement, the Cosby and Weinstein wreckage. You know, actually, I was thinking about that the other day. Doesn't that sound like an old-time comedy duo? Cosby and Weinstein. I watch, I, I'm into Charlie Chaplin and a lot of old radio shows like Benny Goodman and stuff like that. I'm a special kind of ridiculous nerd, I guess. But it sounded like that to me. Cosby and Weinstein. Tune in for the roofies. Stay for the plant care. 
It's a whiz bang G whiz at its finest or whatever those fucking old show vaudeville fucking people used to say. Sorry, I'm digressing. This book caught me at a weird and not so weird time. We it's weird in that all that shit is coming out about these Hollywood assholes. And not so weird because women have long deserved to be heard and treated with as much respect as men treat each other. Especially asshole men treat each other. Maybe better than that. Yeah, a lot better than how assholes treat each other because they're assholes. What the hell am I talking about? See, I like women. That mostly stems from me coming out of one, um, being directly related to a few of them, and I have a disposition toward having sex with those women that aren't related to me. So much so that I married one of them. So I feel like maybe they deserve to be treated better than what the world has been dishing out thus far. For a lot of reasons, it seems that some folks have a hard time with that notion. They felt that things are going in the right direction or that there was never a problem. Judy Garland, if uh, she were alive today, would say a hell of a lot fucking differently. Her life story says differently. She, she never had the backing of a Me Too movement. And her life story screams the consequences of the inequality of respect toward women in a glaring fucking light. We we know her, man. I mean, we grew up with her. It, and, and this shit happened to her. This harassment and being treated like shit. She's this iconic star of The Wizard of Oz. What the Library of Congress claims uh, is the most watched movie ever. So that's a fun fact for you. I grew up with Judy Garland, as did a lot of us, uh, especially with her portrayal of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She died a long time before I was born, but I saw her movies, you know, The Wizard of Oz, obviously. I heard some songs of hers on the radio and on TV, things like that. I knew her the way uh, people know Elvis or Marilyn Monroe or um, Michael Jackson. I mean, not directly them, this image, things they created. Judy Garland was a comforting character for me and a lot of people. She's one of those uh, recurring images from my childhood, from our childhood like a fixed point of reference. She holds that status for a lot of people. My wife has a small collection of Oz-related stuff that illustrates that. I watched The Wizard of Oz like a hundred times, probably. I mean, I wasn't counting, but it's probably pretty fucking close to a hundred. Dorothy and her uh, wide-eyed kind of inquisitive innocence, while she clutched Toto and tripped through what was probably a concussion-induced coma. In her other movies... uh especially with Mickey Rooney and the Andy Hardy stuff, uh, and the Andy Hardy stuff. Sorry, I had to enunciate. Goodness. She was the uh, she was the girl next door, the almost pretty enough girl next door that never seemed to land the guy, which was actually more real than people think, according to the book. Later on in my life, I sort of heard how hard Judy Garland really had it. I mean, I caught scraps here and there. I didn't research things like that. I mean, who does that? Unless you really like Judy Garland, which is fine. Anyway, I never cared enough to learn more, really. I mean, she was Dorothy Gale. She uh, she had a live album I heard occasionally over the years. Um, I heard that she was this gay icon, uh, not gay herself, per se, but for the gay community, like, uh, I don't know, Rock Hudson or Barbara Streisand, and, uh, you know, like show tunes for gay folks, I guess. She was big on that, right? I don't, I don't know. That's as much as I knew. She was a campy darling that died from choking down too many pills, man. She was and uh, maybe still is a big deal among the gay community. Um, but, I mean, that was it. That's all I really knew growing up. 
Dorothy died of a drug overdose. And that's that, right? This book uh, laid it out for me, man, and broke my heart a little bit. I mean, it should have been called Worked Like a Rented Mule, the Judy Garland story. I mean, poor Francis. Francis was Judy Garland's real name uh, before she changed it to Judy Garland. Uh, I mean, she is like a real-life character from a Greek tragedy. She was born on June 10th, 1922, which was about the same time Mussolini marched on Rome and took up the reins of dictatorship. Huh? What a time to be alive. Her parents were Ethel and Frank Gum. They had hoped she'd be a boy, which... That alone kind of tells you about the disappointing direction her life was about to take. Um, they even put in an announcement in the paper for Francis Gum, spelled F-R-A-N-C-I-S, you know, the boy version of the name. So she didn't have the best start in life as far as her parents wanted her, what her parents wanted. Born to Francis Gum, who uh, was her father and possibly gay, um, he was the owner and manager of the New Grand Theater. And uh, and her mother was a fucking bitch named Ethel. I say that in the kindest way possible because she was so much more than a bitch. Daddy Gum. Uh, Daddy Gum was a little disappointed at first, but soon baby Francis, spelled like the girl's name now, uh, became his favorite baby. Actually, he dubbed her Baby. The whole family did. She was this snub-nosed little homely baby. That's what it says in the book, homely baby, uh, who seldom cried and seemed almost unable to contain her great joy at being alive. Frances was born to be the girl next door in real life. It seemed like she'd be, she would have been perfectly content being raised in Grand Rapids, Minnesota as daddy's little girl and maybe growing up to marry some local guy who loved beer almost as much as he hated commies. Everything I can remember about Grand Rapids had charm and and, uh, and gaiety, you know. Alas, this wasn't her fate, as she was the spawn of a true-to-life, shit-ass parent. A zeal for life was something Frances's mother would soon leech out of her in order to chase down her own failed dreams so she could vicariously live through her daughter because she was that kind of fucking bitch. To understand the tragedy of what happened to Judy Garland, or the tragedy that is Judy Garland, you need to know about Ethel, the stage mother. Ethel was born into a large family in Wisconsin. She was always petite, feminine, and her mother's her mother's favorite. Uh, her mother gave her every advantage, transferring her own ambitions, like she would later do to Judy Garland. Uh, her mother transferred her own ambitions onto her. So by the time she was 12, Ethel was playing piano and singing like ass. But the fantasy her mother had built for her refused to die. So she did what any fame-hungry, pretty girl would do. She entered the porn industry. No, I'm kidding. You didn't see that coming, did you? Holy shit. (laughs) The look on your face. Anyway. No, she married a handsome guy and formed a vaudeville act. They did what they did somewhat well, as they managed to save enough money eventually to buy a theater. My father, you know, owned the Rialto Theater, a, a little theater called the Rialto Theater in Grand Rapids, and uh, we had a lovely house. And he was uh, he did he was very successful. What had happened is he had married my mother, and then when they found they were going to have a family, they had settled down in Grand Rapids, and he bought a theater. 
Ethel begged her husband Frank to go back on the road, but he refused. So she threatened to split. Then she discovered she was pregnant. Ethel had dreams of being amazing, of being famous. She followed the lives of famous people in magazines and wanted to be one. Add in the fact that she kind of looked up, uh, looked up to Warren G. Harding's wife, Florence, who rode her husband's ass onto success against all obstacles. Add all that together and you have a recipe for a harping, vicious stage mom simmering in the pot. <sighs> she convinced Frank to put on a live act in the theater on Saturdays and subsequently used her daughters to try and build a fame she never could. It was during one of those performances that Baby Frances made her debut during the Christmas of good old 1924. So imagine this. She sees her siblings up on stage eking out their regular mediocre kid comedy routine thing and she wanted to be with them. So her grandmother, who basically raised her at the time, took her backstage. Baby Frances escaped onto the stage to the confusion of everyone. The kids didn't know what to do and Ethel was pissed telling her to get off the stage. But the crowd loved her. She was stumbling around, very Charlie Chaplin-like, and upon the request to sing, belted out Jingle Bells. It was, the, it was the only song she knew. The crowd loved it even more, and Ethel's brain lit up. Nothing was going to hold her back now, because she found her star. Afterward, Frances, baby Frances, soon-to-be Judy Garland, was worked into the act and traveled continuously for months, living in rented rooms or slept in the car. Shows and shows and shows and shows. Ethel saw to it that all their shows brought them closer to Hollywood as a way to catch the eye of whoever the fuck she thought made movies. Ethel wasn't a motion picture insider or anything. She was just a mother who desperately wanted to sell her daughter's soul for fame and fortune. It was during this time that baby Frances grew very attached to her dad. It was also the time when Ethel fought hardest to stay on the road and shoving toward her goal. As Hedda Hopper is quoted as saying in the book, they, the youngsters arrived in Hollywood like a flock of hungry locusts, driven by the gale winds of their prompting ruthless mothers. One look into the eyes of these women told you what was on their minds. If I could get this kid of mine on the screen, we might just make it big! They robbed them of every phase of childhood to keep the waves in their hair, the pleats in their dress, and the pink polish on the nails. That was Ethel through and through, and it is at the core of what fucked up Judy Garland so badly. Semi-less depressing side note, the name Judy Garland isn't her real name, obviously. It stemmed from a mistake and a snide-ass douchebag. The Gum Sisters' name the Gum Sisters's name was misspelled on a marquee, mistakenly putting up Glum Sisters instead. Ethel lost her shit, as anyone named Gum would. She was told by the headliner that they should change their name anyway, as it rhymed a little too much with dumb, crumb, and bum. The bad reviews practically write themselves. A critic was milling around backstage, so the guy suggested they use his name, Robert Garland. Francis's sisters didn't want to change their name. Some people just love gum. However, she took it as a chance to change her first name to, and maybe lose the nickname they saddled her with. Uh, which was Baby. At the time, her favorite song was called Judy, written by Hoagie Carmichael. I might lose her if I should 
life would end, life would end, cause there's only one in the light of the sun, that's Judy, sure as you're born. And the rest, as they say, is misery. As for the struggle, Frank fought back, but caved a lot too. Agreeing to move them closer to L.A., Ethel pushed back even more, all the while seeing baby Francis, a.k.a. Judy Garland, as the real draw. So, as any good mother would do, she left her other two daughters at home and took Judy on the road by herself. If the fears of lifelong loneliness and abandonment had a starting point, it was right here, on the road. She was constantly away from her father, unable to make any meaningful friendships at home or on the road, and speaking of that shit, when she was able to go to school with regular kids, they treated her like an asshole, man, because she was seen as showbiz trash. Kids and their shithead parents can do a lot of damage, man. Luckily, they're all dead now. But while on the road, she was subjected to the constant mindfuck of her mother. Mama Ethel, the maniacal freak that she was, would pull horrendous shit like threaten to leave her alone in a strange hotel in a strange city because she didn't like Judy's attitude. Who would have thought, but that actually traumatized Judy Garland for the rest of her life. Speaking about it later, she said, I'm afraid at night. I didn't know how to use the telephone when I was a scared little girl, but now at age 41, I do know how to use the phone. And I make all those nocturnal calls to wake up my friends at about three in the morning. I resent the fact that they're sleeping, and they're not around here. It's almost like everybody were mama, and everybody went away, and I'm left alone. This started Judy's three-part start down a seriously dark path in life. Part one, she always felt that at any second people she loved and trusted would leave. Part two, she always felt that pleasing someone was more important than her own feelings. And finally, part three, you do as you're told or bad things happen. Her own feelings were never considered when it came to decisions that were made that affected her life. She never knew how much she earned or saw the money she made, ever. She was forced into jobs, arrangements, and contracts she was never told about, but was expected to own up to. And when it all went south, she carried the blame for it. Her own mother tossed on the first straws on that camel's back, and, uh, and then continued to pile them on thereafter. She met Mickey Rooney around this time, though. His name was Mickey McGuire at the time. She had a crush on him, though by his own admission, it was never reciprocated. This stuck with her, too, though by no means the only thing that went towards lowering her self-esteem. It was instilled in her, an inferiority complex that she would always be the girl who would just never be enough. And it started during a time when she was supposed to be coalescing as an adult. What a horrible thing to do to somebody. There are millions of people stuck that think they're the only one that this happens to. They're the only one that feels this way, as it seems that Judy did. There's nothing funny about that. All the damage done by Ethel, alienation, and compliance were taken with her to MGM, where shit just got magnitudes worse. While there, she was told that she was fat and ugly. Constantly. Isn't that great? Louis B. Mayer had her on a rigid diet that sounds horrific. <laughs> Just thinking about it. Chicken soup, black coffee, four packs of cigarettes a day. Four 
packs of cigarettes a day and diet pills every few hours. This was a year before The Wizard of Oz began shooting. After reading this, I might just ball my way through Wizard of Oz after the MGM lion roars and not stop until the credits. The sadness kind of crying, not the laughing kind, that usually happens when uh, when I remember the Tin Man is just a metal dick that wants the lion dead. If you think about it that way, watch that movie back. It's fucking funny. Diets like this started at 14 years old and stretched out for a decade. This caused her to faint multiple times. She was in and out of the doctor, which caused film delays, which they blamed on her girlish, whiny weakness, of course. Hey, look, in their defense, it was a different time. I mean, the effects of starvation and heavy drug use were completely new to the human race in the 1930s. No one had ever seen the effects of malnutrition before. If only they knew, right? Bunch of fucking jerk-offs, man. Unfucking believable that you... Well, I mean, you have to make money. Oy. The diet routine, coupled with the enforced drug routine of uppers or quote-unquote pep pills, followed by downers. Between setups and other performer scenes, time lags of one to three hours, Judy would be escorted to the studio hospital and given a strong dosage of Nembutal to put her immediately to sleep. Fifteen minutes before she was to appear before cameras, she was awakened, fed a handful of uppers, and sent back out onto the stage. Because they turned her into a movie-making machine. Eventually, she couldn't function without them. Margaret Hamilton, the lady that played the Wicked Witch of the West, was kind of a friend to her, though Judy thought she was more of a friend than Margaret Hamilton thought she was a friend. She asked her once, Why do you take them? Why don't you refuse? Judy replied, Well, I just can't seem to either get up or sleep without them anymore. For all of this, for all the dieting and all the forced drug use, she was paid $500 a week, of which the bulk went to her mother, Ethel, while Mickey Rooney was paid 5000 a week. No fucking shit. All the while, they had her cranking movies out back to back. Not only that, there was more. She was molested by the head of the studio, Louis B. Mayer, other executives, and she was even groped by the fucking munchkins. The motherfucking munchkins. Wow. Despite all of this, Judy was made to comply and forced into project after project for years on end, with no consideration or concern for her well-being or mental state. She just had to deal with it. She tried to seek treatment, of course, multiple times. Her longest-lasting doctor was an old guy she could barely understand, so he wasn't much help. Every time she began making progress, she'd reopen old wounds and be told to report back to work again before she made any more progress. One such stint described in the book contains a great story about Judy Garland, and it's about a child with an intellectual disability. She was again seeking help to kick her pill habit, her insomnia and suicidal tendencies by this point. It was the first time she accepted that without professional help, she was not going to survive. This time, she went to the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston. She was there for 13 weeks. The hospital was also a place uh, more like a home for many intellectually disabled kids. Though in the book... um, 
The book calls them retarded. It was a different time when the book was published. That's not a joke. It, I mean, it was the 1970s. People were kind of dicks when it came to empathizing back then. I mean, just look at disco. The clothing alone violates every tenet of human decency, let alone the music. Judy was welcomed by the special needs kids in, in a very special way. And that she was to them, she was, she was Dorothy from Kansas. In the flesh, she was familiar and comforting. According, <clears throat> accommodating as she was, she loved singing to the kids. One in particular drew her attention the most. It was a little girl who looked a little like Liza, her own daughter. And she wouldn't respond to human interactions at all. So Judy gravitated toward her and focused on her. She would talk to her even though she wouldn't respond. The nurses thought it was great because they thought it would really open her up. And so she spent a lot of time with her just having one-sided conversations with this little girl. And then, I mean, this this was every day. She would sing to her. She would have conversations. She would talk to her about her little girl, Liza, and, and this girl with intellectual disabilities. She would never respond. Then, and then Judy had to go back to work again. So she said her goodbyes to everybody. It came time to say goodbye to the little girl who never said anything. But she wasn't around. She couldn't find, they couldn't find her. They searched everywhere, and eventually Judy found her in a room, kind of in the corner, um, hugging her own knees, I guess. Judy went to say goodbye. She didn't respond. Um... So Judy got up to leave, and the girl started screaming. And having never spoken before, she told Judy Garland that she loved her. And that she didn't want her to go. I mean, obviously Judy Garland was touched. She hugged her back. And was crying and such. The girl kept saying that she loved her and didn't want her to go. So Judy said, if you love me, you'll let the nurses help you. You let the nurses talk to you, just like you're talking to me. I thought it spoke volumes about how Judy Garland was a good mother, or tried to be. I can't really attest to whether she was good or not. I haven't read Liza Minnelli's biography, but still. It showed that she cared even though she had a life that tried to strip that out of her pretty bad. But she persevered, and she always went back to work. I've spent... Years and years and years trying to please through singing or acting. People lived off her and mooched off her, starting with her mother and then onto her husbands who just used her for money and pushed her out there onto the stage constantly to make more and more money, even after her career at MGM ended, which was bad. Nobody cared. Oh, they cared about the money that I brought in because they made... It made them rich. Lots of people got rich off of me. My children didn't get rich. I didn't get rich. She never gave up. She never let too much get her down. Though, I mean, a lot did. You don't always keep on top, either. No one does. No. I don't. My life's been, my career has been like a roller coaster, you know. It's just, I'm either an enormous success or just a down and out failure, which is silly, you know, because I, everyone always asks me, uh, how does it feel to 
make a comeback. And I don't know where I've been. <laughs> uh, I haven't been away. I've been working all the time. She was very strong. As far as the rest of the book goes, it, it's very good. It is really great. Um, I think what the book really, what weirded me out about the book a little bit was that it really fixated on her weight a lot. Constantly talking about whether she had gained weight or lost weight, how she went on stage and she looked really fat, or how she was dressed poorly and things like that, which is really, I think, superficial. And, and there are also a lot of, uh, a lot of creative license, a, a lot of creative license was taken as far as what, Judy Garland was thinking at the time and things like that, which I thought was a little odd or, or a little much for a biography. I prefer factual things, not necessarily a boring list of facts. I mean, I do like a little narrative, but adding in things or, or interpreting people's thoughts, I think that's a little much, unless they say so directly, which, I mean, after reading this book, I went and looked up a lot of things about Judy Garland, uh, a lot of things I never knew about. But I really do feel a lot can be learned about her life. A lot of lessons taken from that. And it deserves to be looked at even more now with the Me Too movement and the focus on people, uh, how poorly women are treated uh, by men in supposed power to appreciate the real damage that it, that it can do. I think it's very important. I suggest going out and picking anything up on Judy Garland. I don't even know if this one's still in print anymore. I'm, I haven't looked that up. But, man, oh, man, uh, it, it was, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff I left out. I, I left out the, the fact that she got screwed out of her own high school graduation, how she be, how she went on to the stage later in life, the, the, the way she died, I left that out. Um, I don't really like to do a cover-to-cover recap. I mean, because you sh- people should be reading more. Anyway, it's been a rough week. I've been playing around with the format, and it's just a lot of stuff. Again, if you want to contribute or if you like what you heard, shoot on over to uh shoot shoot on over to Patreon and uh contribute there and get the ball rolling. But anyway, I hope you had fun. I really do enjoy doing these. It is uh it is I appreciate you listening. I sincerely do. I hope you listen again next week. Um, I'm not sure what book I'm going to be doing next week. Maybe maybe economics, a book about script writing, or I also have one about the uh, the producer of uh, Ocean's Eleven. It just piles of shit around here. I don't know. I'll pick up something. If you have any suggestions, you can hit me up on Facebook, or better yet, contribute, and I will definitely, definitely listen up with that. <laughs> yeah, you can just hit me up on Facebook or on Twitter. Toss a suggestion out to me. Um... Anyway, I hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, I enjoyed it. So, I'll see you. And uh, do me a favor. Read a book. Just, just read some books, will you? I mean, don't let them die out. Thanks. Bye.